Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Thank you, brothers, for leading us this evening. It's so good to see all of you. It was really sweet to listen to you singing, particularly tonight. Those were great songs. By the way, if you've not noticed, we specifically have begun to sing songs that we've sung in worship the previous Sunday, because we don't see this as a place where you can come and substitute this for Uh, corporate worship with a local body. And so we want to encourage you to be in fellowship and in worship here at Trinity Community Church uh, on Sundays with us. We sing those songs together as a congregation. Well, as you well know, we're in Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 3. Thank you, Stan, for bringing the word last week. We are going to be closing out Ruth chapter 3 this evening And we're only going to have two more weeks in the book of Ruth before beginning the book of Esther. And so we've got this week, two more weeks, and then the book of Esther we begin for the fall. Ruth chapter 3 verses 8 to 18. You remember by way of a summary and a recap that Naomi is wishing for a permanent home for Ruth. She sees Ruth as her daughter. She loves Ruth as her daughter. And Ruth obeys Naomi in everything. This struck me. Ladies, gentlemen, Ruth is an adult. She's not only an adult, she's a widow. She's been married and lost her husband. And still, what's she doing? Whatever her mother-in-law tells her. This is a woman who is wise, she, don't, don't disregard wise counsel. Uh, seek wise counsel. Chase wise counsel. And don't just put yourself around people who say things that, that comfort you because you're around godly people. And I've got people that are truth tellers around me. That's not enough. Obey their counsel. Obey their counsel. Seek it and obey it. Ruth finds herself in the Bible because she was faithful with what God had given her. She was the first to sing the blessings of taking the counsel of those God had put in her life. Now, God is sovereign. We're living out his providence. We're waiting on his providence to unfold every second. And we must act upon it. We're constantly being given by God opportunities We don't just sit back and passively let God do our obeying for us. We don't sit back passively and let God's sovereignty do what we're told to do by the sovereign God. We act in line with God's word. It reminds me of places like Philippians 2, where Paul tells the church there, work out your salvation. Work out the salvation that God has worked in you. Work it out with fear and trembling. This is, this is a, 
This is a serious thing. It requires caution. It requires uh, trepidation. It's something that makes us think and, 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 and vex a little bit. There's effort here. There's, there's a shaking hand. Because we're dealing with God. We're dealing with eternal things. We're dealing with our own soul and with the souls of others. So take it seriously. But know this. That God is the one at work in you. Both. To will, that means to give your desires, to, to, to give the desire to work out your salvation, and to work, that means to give the power, to actually give the energy for his own good pleasure. So do what he says to do, but know that if you have a desire to do it, that came from him. And know if you have the energy to do it, that came from him. He's the one doing it, but you're doing what he's doing. As John Piper said, you're acting the miracle. Augustine, uh, early church father, I've been spending lots of time with Augustine lately, brilliant mind. He said, love God and do what you want. Now that, that could be wildly abused. But we have to understand what he means by love God. Love God with your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. Be loving God with everything. And guess what you won't be doing? Sinning. So love God completely, entirely, and do whatever it is that he's put in your heart. But don't justify something sinful. Oh, I love God, and I'm going to do this sinful thing. I love God, I'm going to do this faithless thing. I love God, I'm going to do this disobedient thing. Because Augustine said, love God and do what you want. No, no, no. Be loving God. And if you can be loving God and do that thing that you want, do it. It's wonderful freedom. Uh, Wonderful freedom to live that way. We can't love God while sinning. We do not love God while we're not seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. We're not loving God if we're enslaved to the pursuit of something other than God. And so it's important as we're getting more into the romance of Ruth, that if you're enslaved to wanting to to get married and have a family, if that's the thing that's just controlling every decision you make, you're off. That's idolatrous. Be chasing his kingdom and his righteousness. And if God affords the opportunity in his providence to get married to someone that it would so please him for you to marry, do it by all means. It's a wonderful gift from him. Or if you're in uh, Drew's situation, date if that's the uh, opportunity that the Lord's given you. That was fun. You guys did a good job. Kenton, that was good. There's a way to love God and to act as God provides. Now, that's exactly what tonight's text is all about. Naomi spotted an opportunity that God provided for Ruth and Boaz to speak in private. Tonight is providential. Boaz is threshing since the breeze is just perfect for carrying the chaff but not throwing around the grain. Okay, so you have to choose wisely when you do your threshing. There's got to be a breeze because it has to separate the chaff from the kernels. But if there's too much wind, the kernels go with it and they go everywhere and it's a mess. So God is controlling the weather for Ruth and for Boaz. Isn't that a comfort? These are not the exception. This is what God's doing with all of his people. Are you his daughter? Are you his son? He's controlling even the weather for you. 
I know that's kind of hard in Fresno in summer for us to believe, but it is the truth. Boaz worked hard. He ate. He drank. He didn't get drunk, but he's merry. He's mellow. He's falling asleep under the stars, probably with a smile on his face beside a mountain of God's provision, probably protecting what he has harvested from potential thieves. And Naomi has told Ruth to bathe, to put her face on, to wear her best clothes, spritz the perfume, and wait until Boaz is snoozing. Now, it's fascinating that we have the precedent in Scripture not for women making a move. Women are not to pursue men. Godly women don't do that. But it is permissible for godly women to position themselves to be noticed by godly men so that men can make the move if they choose the... Yeah, that's right. I said that right. If they choose to do so. So she's positioning herself to be noticed by Boaz should Boaz take notice of her. And I think at this time, she's well aware that Boaz thinks very highly of her. She uncovers his feet so that as the night grows cold he'll begin to shiver and he'll have to wake up and adjust his blanket and he'll notice her and it will be deep enough in the night that everyone's fallen asleep with a belly full of food and maybe some other uh, alcoholic beverages. Now what's fascinating is the author is dramatic here. The tone completely changes. You could see it for yourself in English. While they're with others, he refers to Boaz and Ruth by name. But now, it's like a a scene in a movie. We're under the canopy of space. it's, It's dark. They've got the heavens for a blanket and the earth for a pillow. And it's as if the narrator has cut the lights. It's dark. All you can see is silhouettes. And he places a spotlight on the two, now referring to them, not as Boaz and Ruth, but as the man and the woman. It's fascinating. You feel like you're watching it in the dark. I know there's a man there. I know there's a woman there. But I couldn't tell who they were if I didn't know that it was Boaz and Ruth. The chapter feels private atmosphere is so intimate that even references to God are sparse. It's almost as if God is respecting their privacy. Okay, I know that's not a theologically correct statement, but that is a literarily correct statement. That's the feel of this passage. Verse 8. Then it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. You can imagine he's laying down on his back and something startles him awake and he bends forward, okay? 
Now, there's different theories on what the startling is. The word literally means trembles or shivers. So it's right in line with the plan. We think that maybe he's, he's, his body got cold. His little, his little toes are cold and, and he, he, he reaches down to, to grab the blanket and to readjust. Uh, Others think that because he's alert, he's on the alert for, for bandits and thieves that any little sound will spook him. Okay. But what does he see? What is it? Is it a burglar or beast? Nay. That's an unintentional pun. I didn't mean that. Verse 8. Behold, look, a woman was lying at his feet. Now, he's drowsy. He's confused. There's an awkward pause in the text here, verse 9. And he said, who are you? I mean, is it a drunk floozy? He doesn't know. The harvest time, this is party time. Okay, worldly people are doing a bunch of bad things at this time. They're all excited. The famine's over. We're feasting. There there are a lot of people. Most people are probably drinking too much. And it's notorious. As a matter of fact, threshing floor, going down to the threshing floor, was, was, was used as a euphemism for hooking up with someone. Okay? So they're in a delicate position here. They're in a common position, but it's a delicate position nonetheless. Boaz wasn't planning this. And Boaz is a godly man. Can you imagine godly men waking up with a girl in your room? Okay, who who are you? What? Whoa, what's going on? He's drowsy. He's confused. Uh, Maybe, maybe worst case scenario, this is a decoy for some robbers. They're going to, they're going to try and entertain me here as they steal my stuff. They steal my my wheat, my barley. She quickly responds, verse 9, and she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Notice she's been calling herself Ruth the Moabitess. She doesn't call herself that. They're on a first name basis. They know each other. This is familiar. Uh, There's even a confidence here. there's There's this unspoken thing. We... We're close now. We've been working with each other for a while. You've been showing me too much kindness for me to not feel comfortable just saying, I'm Ruth. Okay? Now, she doesn't call him sir or lord as she has. This is intimate. These these are equals speaking. Now, remember, what was Ruth supposed to do? At this point, uncover his feet when he wakes up. He will tell you what to do. You do whatever he says. He's a godly man. Naomi trusts that Boaz is not going to tell Ruth to do inappropriate things. But here they are. Here's the moment of truth. We expect Ruth to be quiet. Naomi just wants a husband for her daughter-in-law. Ruth is now her daughter. This is her girl. And she just wants a husband and a home. Naomi's not looking out for herself. She's looking out for Ruth. Watch this. How does Ruth go off script? She calls the shot. Again, we're going to see that this is actually a remarkably humble, godly, sweet thing. Verse 9. So spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. By law, 
You are one, a goal. You're, you're the one that, that is able to redeem our family property, redeem our family fortune, marry into the family and produce an heir in Elimelech's name. It's a very selfless thing for a kinsman redeemer to do. Okay? And here she is. She's saying, put your coat on my shoulders. We still... That's still an iconic romantic gesture, isn't it, in America? You know that a guy is interested in you if he takes his coat, puts it on your shoulders. Well, that's the, that's the idea here. It's a, it's a sign of proposal, okay, to put his garment over her shoulders. Now, you might be thinking, wow, is Ruth being forward? Absolutely not. We've got to retrace our steps a little bit. What had Boaz prayed over Ruth? You remember what his blessing was in chapter 2? He says, may Yahweh fully repay your work and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. The guy could not be pouring out more good fortune on Ruth. She is acting perfectly in line with what Boaz has been saying to her. And she's saying, you're wishing all this stuff. You're praying all this stuff for me. It's within your ability to answer your own prayers. It's actually quite charming what she's saying. Ruth has just said, why don't you answer your own prayer? It reminds me, Spurgeon tells the story of a young father who faithfully prayed for those that were in need in the church, other believers that were struggling financially. And after one day that he prayed, his young little boy said to him, um, Dad, can I have your wallet? He said, sure, son, what's up? He said, I, just, I think I could answer some of your prayers for you. It's a convicting moment for his dad. But that's essentially what's going on here. It's like, Boaz, you're, you're praying all these wonderful things for me. And I think it's, we kind of all know that you'd like to do those things for me. But we're going to find out here in a moment reasons why Boaz hasn't availed himself. Ruth knows what's up. Okay, I think we could even go so far as to say Ruth probably is, is, is sensing Boaz likes me. He's got an interest in me. He's prayed for my well-being. But remember, she's much younger. He's been referring to her as what? Daughter. My daughter. She's noticeably younger. And so she's probably wisely thinking, the reason Boaz is not making a move is because he doesn't want to spook me. And he doesn't realize that I would gladly say yes if he were to propose to me. She's made it obvious that she's not interested in the boys. And so she's certain of his affections. She's trying to make it very obvious that she's not going after the young men. Ruth is inviting his proposal. She knows that he wants to do it. And she's saying, I give you permission to propose to me. Verse 10. Then he said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. Stop calling her that, okay? It's finally going somewhere. Stop calling her your girl. Well, call her your girl. Don't call her your daughter. 
But I, I love that. I love this response. May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now that might escape us, mainly what he's saying. This is wonderful stuff. Okay, He's, he's observing and, and he's informing for us what just happened. Ruth has been virtuous. She has been loyal. Not only has she not flirted around, she is in this moment seeking not her own best interests, but the best interests of Naomi. Her actions are for Naomi. Her loving kindnesses, that's her hesed love, her faithful, uh, her faithful covenant love. She's made a covenant with God. She's made a covenant with Naomi. I'm your girl. I'm your daughter. I'm committed to you. You're my family. Your God's my God. Your people's my people. She's committed to Naomi. And her loving kindnesses are her acts of covenant faithfulness to seek out not just a husband for herself, but to seek out a redeemer for Naomi's clan, for Naomi. She's wanting good. She, that's where she went off script. Naomi says, let's just get you a husband, sweetie. She goes, no, I'm watching out for you, mom. So when it came time, she spoke up instead of letting Boaz tell her what to do. Boaz, be our kinsman redeemer. Had Ruth married a young boy, a kid, a young man, Naomi's family would have been without an heir and without their property and without anything. She could have done that. She hasn't. It's fascinating that that, uh, Boaz says, listen, you've neither gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Sounds weird to us, huh? But think about this. What is the contrast there? You've neither gone off for love with a poor guy or gone off for money with a rich guy. I mean, it's a, he's amazed. You're looking out for your mother-in-law. So now, verse 11, my daughter, do not fear. All that you say, I will do for you. What words of comfort to her. For all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. She's a, she has made a, a reputation for herself. L- listen, ladies. Would any man in the church say this about you? Would any man in the church say that girl has worked hard to earn a reputation with everyone? Everyone knows that she's a woman of excellence. Gentlemen, would young women say this about you? That you are, everyone knows, you are a man of excellence. I just realized, I mean, we've got the guys over here and the girls over here. What is going on? Boaz promises to not only marry Ruth as an individual, but to completely assume responsibility for Naomi's property, to restore her fortunes at his own expense. He's got to buy this stuff out. Producing an heir means it's not his heir. This is selfless stuff. Naomi was not seeking it for herself, which shows Ruth's extraordinary heart. She's devoted herself to Naomi most, rather than marry for love or money. There's a caveat. The, the, The writer loves holding us in suspense. And if you don't, if you read these books quickly, you don't appreciate the drama that is so poignant 
verses 12 to 13. But now, it is true, I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Okay, don't try to spiritualize this too much. You can infer things, you can take it typologically and everything. He literally means there is a family member that's closer related to you than I am. He has the rights to redeem you before me. There's a big issue here. So he tells her, stay this night and it will be done in the morning that if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Wow. Lie down until morning. We've seen the virtue of Ruth. Again, we're reminded the virtue of Boaz. He's not trying to scam the system. He could have. He could have went around this Leverite thing. He could have done things his own way. He clearly loves Ruth. He clearly wants Ruth. He clearly wants to do this for her. He wants to be everything to her in a human sense. And yet Boaz surrenders to God's providence. If the closer relative chooses to take Ruth, so be it. Not only that, Boaz pursues Ruth's best interests, not his own desires. He's happy for Ruth if that relative gets his girl. That's, that's big. This is, Boaz is a big man. He's thinking big thoughts, big, big God thoughts. And it's determining how he lives his life. I, I want you to think about this, young men. I want you to think about this, young women. I want you to think, do you worship a big God? Because if you do, you're not going to be anxious about anything. You're going to trust your life to him completely. He's good. He's wise. He's all-powerful. And he loves you. It's liberating, especially when it comes to matters of marriage. But the storyteller hangs us in a dreadful suspense. Will Boaz get the girl? God is glorified by suspense. He loves suspense. Suspense is good. Suspense is exciting. Suspense keeps us wondering Is God going to be kind to me again and then again? How about this time? Is he going to be kind to me again? And every time he proves yes. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning. Patience hurts. Impatience hurts us way more. Leaving would have put Ruth in danger or open to accusations of misbehavior. What do you think of a young girl walking alone at this hour? You think that she's prostituting herself out or doing something mischievous? So Boaz is protecting Ruth, and Ruth is wise to receive that protection. She rose, we continue to read, she rose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. I don't want anyone talking about this, okay? Nothing bad happened. And she, by her own volition, gets up before anyone could recognize anyone. Why? Because this could jeopardize what are now their dreams and their plans. He's going to go down to the city square and he's going to find out if that kinsman redeemer closer than him is going to take Ruth and take the family. 
And, and, and one small accusation could ruin the whole thing. Not just accusations of sexual pro- promiscuity, but accusations that Ruth and Boaz are conspiring to shortcut this other kinsman redeemer out of what is his rightful claim. There's all sorts of accusations that could be thrown at them. Now, at this point, though innocent, people can make accusations, people can start a wildfire by their tongue, as James says. Gossipers can say, it seems like Ruth is, is a young gold digger after all. Uh, we, we, we found out she really is a, a tricky Moabitess. She's infiltrating the system. Boaz, that, that poor older guy, is falling for it. People could t- say that. It would ruin them. Let's ask ourselves something. What would we say if we were getting up early that morning to go milk the cow or something? And we saw this young woman walking away from the property of Boaz. She's totally innocent. Boaz is totally innocent. But let's be enemies of ourselves. Let's interrogate ourselves. Let's let the Holy Spirit do his work. Are we really eager to identify sin? When we see a situation, do we immediately interpret it as sins going on? Oh, they're wrong. Are we quick to criticize? Are we quick to condemn? Are we quick to decide? We know exactly what's going on here. I know all the facts. I know exactly what's happening. I know their motives. I know their behaviors. You see, one danger of being in a maturing church that I believe Trinity Community Church is by God's grace is we can have this growing attitude of pride and criticism as we grow in knowledge. But remember what 1 Corinthians told us. Knowledge only puffs up. It inflates like a balloon, makes you an airhead. Love builds up. And how does love do that? I want you to think about that in terms of what we're reading here. Love is patient. It doesn't quickly make assumptions. It's patient. It does not take into account a wrong suffered, even if a wrong is suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't want to go about spreading bad reports. It rejoices with the truth. It labors hard. It works hard to find out what the truth is. It believes the best about everyone. It hopes the best about everyone. It endures everything from everyone. It never fails. When was the last time that the Lord Jesus Christ accused you to his father? When's the last time Jesus went to the father and gave him a bad report card on your soul? I want you to think about this. He's been patient and kind and loyal to cover your every sin and slow to notice your acts of unrighteousness and quick to rejoice with you over your very small victories and to bear with you and to believe the best about you and to hope the best about you and to endure everything you do without fail. It's amazing, eh? Now knowing How good he is, have you resembled him this past week in how you love others? Or do you love giving out bad report cards, speculating, gossiping, slandering? Ruth has, though Ruth has not sinned, an insecure Boaz could have been angry at her for putting them both in a questionable spot. 
Instead, he doesn't sin with her in his lust or against her in his self-righteousness, but thoughtfully protects them both from even the appearance of sin out of love for the entire community. Verse 15, and he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and placed it on her. Now, this is actually comical. This would be in a rom-com. Okay, you're not picking up what the humor is yet until you realize. Well, we'll get there in a second. I have a question for you. What would anyone think of Ruth walking home at this time, carrying a massive load of threshed barley on her back? Are they going to be thinking she's been out doing silly stuff? No way. They're going to think exactly what they've been thinking about Ruth from day one. There goes Ruth, working day and night, working overtime. She burned the midnight oil. Naomi's really lucky to have her as a daughter-in-law. Boaz plotted that out. Boaz is wanting everyone to think the best about Ruth. And he does that by treating Ruth best. Now, what may they wrongly think, spotting her and him at night? She's pulling one over. She's tricky. So, notice God's providence. This was a fun part that I was going to have you share. It's funny. Notice again God's providence. That Ruth has wore her best clothing her highest quality clothing. What Ruth intends to look beautiful, God intends to serve as a sturdy barley basket and to maintain her integrity. Appreciate how adorable the scene is. Here's Boaz loading about 60 to 100 pounds on her. (laughs) Can you imagine the sight? I mean, it's hysterical, really. And this little cutie pie is huffing and puffing all the way back home. This, it belongs in in a romantic comedy. I don't watch many of those, but I suspect it would make for a really good scene. Now, imagine how Naomi has spent the night back home. She's been waiting for Providence to pray, to play out. She's been restless, praying, sleepless, pacing back and forth, window watching. Her dramatic fate hangs in the balance. Verses 16 to 17. Then she, Ruth, went into the city. Then she came to her mother-in-law and she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty. It's like Ruth has not got in the door. She's like, oh, I went down there to look all pretty, and mommy, or Naomi, mom, yeah. Uh, He he made me carry this. I mean, it's great. He's he's taking care of us. He's never ceased to take care of us. But my gosh, this, I didn't expect to drench my best clothes with sweat tonight. Boaz had both Ruth and Naomi in mind. He's already acting like the kinsman redeemer. Don't you dare go back to her empty-handed. 
He's disguised Ruth as an overtime worker. He's blessed her. And this is such a picture of sinners saved by grace. How they talk. She doesn't notice this. Naomi asks Ruth, Ruth, how did it go? And Ruth doesn't say, oh, I'm going to get this and that and this and that. She says, he's so good. He's so good. And she told Naomi all that he's done. That's what, that's what forgiven sinners do. We can't shut up about Christ. We just gab on and on about how good he is. And the forgiven, they just go on and on about what Christ has done. And that's the, that's the scene. Naomi had said that she was empty-handed at the beginning of this book. She had been stripped, stripped of joy by famine and death. She's childless, but now there's this hope of fullness and this big old bag of barley is yet another evidence of that. But notice this. Does Naomi see Naomi? God's been sanctifying Naomi. She was just completely fixated on her circumstances. But now she's been sobered by suffering. Her heart has been postured before God more humbly. And what does she say? Does she idolize the hope of better circumstances? Listen to verse 18. Then she said, sit then, my daughter, until you know how the matter falls into place. For the man will not remain quiet until he has finished the matter today. She knows enough about Boaz to know he's going to take care of it immediately. We're going to have the verdict by the end of the day. But she's telling Ruth, Ruth, do not count your egg. What's the phrase? Don't count your eggs before they're hatched. Is that right? Don't count your eggs before they're hatched, sweetie. Don't get ahead of yourself. She's cautiously optimistic. Let me ask you something. Okay, she's optimistic with Ruth, but she's cautious with Ruth. I want to ask you a question. And by asking you a question, there's, there's an implied question in there. How are you discipling? How do you disciple? Are you cautiously optimistic? Or are you critical? Are you just stupidly optimistic? Or are you wisely optimistic? Or in your wisdom, are you pessimistic? See, godly discipling, which assumes you're discipling people, by the way, it's cautiously optimistic. It's always cautiously optimistic. It's rooting for them while protecting them. And Naomi hopes with Ruth, yet she keeps her sober-minded. Now, watch this. Can you believe this is the very last we ever hear from Ruth in the entire book? She's gone. She's going to be peripherally present as things pan out, but we don't hear from her again. She's escorted off stage. The text, fascinatingly, at no point in this entire book, I have been shocked to find that the text never emphasizes romance. The text screams about godly faithfulness. Now, three-fourths of the way through the book... We're almost done. We are not left with the impression that Boaz and Ruth are in love, per se, but both love God and both take very seriously God's word. Now, it's impossible for me to know all the details of your life. However, 
I can say that if you're not honoring God in your relationships, whatever's going on is not romantic. Not in God's sight. So, let the word of God gently reprove and correct whatever might be amiss in your thought life or in your actual actions. As the author of love, as love itself, God wants so much more for you than whatever it is that you're doing if it not be honoring to God. Ruth waited on the Lord. I'm not sure why God has made me a pastor over young adult ministry. I really am not. But I trust he's at least using my singleness as a testimony. So you guys can hear the word of God without distraction and not think, oh, shut up, Pastor Sam. You're married. You have kids. You don't know what it's like or you've forgotten what it's like. Well, I know. I know what it's like. And I pray that the Lord's using that so that you can hear the word of God totally distilled, undiluted, and not be distracted by my marital status. Brothers and sisters, if Naomi trusted the character of Boaz, a fallen man, should we not trust an unfallen God? Is his character not more irreproachable? When has God ever failed us, whom he loved so much that he did not hold back his own son from death for us? God redeems everything. He redeems it all. He moves the heart of Boaz to love a woman who had loved another man for nearly a decade and grieved his death. God is more powerful to do way beyond what any of us could dream up for ourselves or even dare to pray. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.